This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house. There I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if in another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you. Reform your ways and your actions. This is the word of God. My wife and I, Ruth and myself, are very fond uh, of uh, going up the west coast of Scotland, Oban, Mull, Iona. And a few years ago, while we were in Oban, we went to the Caithness Glass Factory just outside the town. They specialize in making colored glass and in particular uh, paperweights. The day we went uh, to the factory workshop, there were four people working there, three glass blowers and one apprentice. And in the glass works, uh, we found things extremely hot. There was a massive uh, furnace of molten glass right in the middle of the area. And then beside each of the glass blowers' work areas uh, was a small furnace, white hot as well. The day we were there, two of the men were making uh, paperweights, and the third was doing a, a more complex piece of work with the help of the apprentice. And we stood and watched him taking the glass out of the furnace, rolling it uh, in uh, colored powder, shaping it, blowing it, then putting it back into the furnace again, rolling it again, another colored powder, and the apprentice helping and holding a second uh, blowpipe as, as, as this uh, expert was, was putting two very beautiful pieces together to make quite a large vase. In fact, we watched him for just over half an hour. And just as he was completing uh, this vase, as, as he withdrew the, uh, what he was making from the, from, the, from the furnace, there was just a slight touch of the vase on the side of, of the furnace. And he looked disgusted. He plunged the thing into water to cool it and then just smashed it 
into a container that had broken glass in it. He discarded this beautiful thing that he'd made as useless. One shake of his hand and all that craftsmanship was gone. One tiny mistake, one error of judgment and what had been an item of great beauty was cast aside as useless. We shared in the sadness and frustration and disappointment of that moment. And you know, I thought there's a parable about life here. Sometimes a person who has been of excellent behavior, who has acted with integrity throughout their life, is away on holiday perhaps with friends or at a Christmas party, or all of a sudden they, they go beyond the bounds of acceptable behavior in front of people who matter. Their reputation is gone. Sometimes even their career ruined. Somebody in the heat of a moment writes something on an email that's broadcast everywhere. Something that they don't really believe, but they destroy their lives. And of course, we have seen plenty of examples in Ireland in in the last few years of businessmen who had always been people of integrity, but they'd got too ambitious, they'd borrowed too much, they'd attempted too much, and in the end, they, to try to preserve their business, they were less than honest. It was discovered, and their career was ended. So often, when that error is made, and the wrongdoing is done, and then discovered, There's no reprieve, no reprieve. It's like that beautiful vase. It's finished with. It's discarded. Their lives and their lifetime skills can become worthless. They're written off. There's no coming back. What is it that people say? Oh, you couldn't trust them now. Once a thief, always a thief. Or a leopard can never change its spots. Isn't that the attitude of many of us today? And isn't that the wisdom by which we live in our society? Imperfections, sins, stupidities, call them what you want, are not repairable. When a person does something wrong, that's it. Their career can be smashed into smithereens. They become discredited members of society. That's how the world works. But that's not how God works. We've got a different picture of God in the Bible. Thank goodness God is not like that. God is not like a glassblower who discards those of us who don't turn out the way he wanted us to be. We've this very different picture of God that that we read of in, in Jeremiah. God is the potter and we are the clay. And when we go wrong, God can take the clay that's our lives and start again and make something better with it. God is a potter, not a glass blower. And the message of the Bible is that all of us make mistakes. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isn't that what we believe? All of us really deserve to be discarded. But God knows that we are clay. And he's willing to forgive and he's willing to start again with us. 
Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You see, despite our failings and frustrations at times, nobody's life is without worth in God's sight. No matter what we've done, no matter how we've failed, God is the potter, and he can take that clay, that ordinary clay that's your life and mine, and model and remodel it into something different, something better, something good. That's the message of Scripture. That's the message for us today. We see plenty of examples of it. Look at King David, leader of Israel, highly successful, overcome with desire for a married man's wife, Bathsheba. And what does he do? He commits adultery with her. He makes her pregnant. And then he arranges for her husband to be killed so that he can take her as his wife. What indiscretion, what evil. And of course the prophet Nathan confronts David with this and he's man enough to repent and he goes on then of course to become the greatest king that Israel ever had. And we can think of Peter. Peter, the leader of the twelve, the one who said to Jesus as they were in Jerusalem for the last time, even if I have to die with you, I will never, never desert you. And then he faithfully follows him to the high priest's house, and when he's challenged by a little maid and some other men about the the place, he ends up cursing Jesus. What treachery! What treachery! But what does Jesus do? When Jesus meets with those apostles by the sea at Galilee after his resurrection, he takes Peter apart and he said, Do you love me? Three times he asks, and three times he commissions Peter again, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Jesus gives Peter another chance, if you like. He remakes and restores him, and Peter becomes a great apostle that we read about in the early church. God is a potter rather than a glass blower. And because of that, none of us is without hope. If some of us here today feel that at some point in our past, our life was shattered, our hopes destroyed, our plans dashed by by something that we did that was foolish perhaps, perhaps we've given up hope, We're just drifting through life now, marking time. Dreams of yesterday are gone. The message of the gospel, of course, is that God can make us and help us begin again and mold our lives into something more useful and good. No man is without hope. And this, of course, affects how we regard other people. It's easy to write other people off. We hear it all the time in our society and radio and television. All politicians are useful or useless. All bankers are bad. It's easy to write people off. And especially, of course, if some individuals have done things wrong, even if it was only in their youth, 
even if it was in the church here, even it's in later years. As far as many people are concerned, those people who have flawed lives are beyond redemption. And the message we preach is different. No man, no woman is beyond the power of God to change. No one has made such a mess of their life that the divine potter can't take that clay and mold it into something good and useful and beautiful again. This is the message that we have. In the Church of Scotland, a year or two ago, there was an issue in the church that brought before the church this issue in a very vivid way. A man who was serving a prison sentence for murder was converted while he was in jail. He saw the error of his ways He became a Christian. He handed over his life to Christ. Quite naturally, many people were suspicious. Many around him were skeptical. A person can claim to change, to gain some advantage for himself, maybe get early release, maybe get easier conditions. He persisted in his profession of faith. And gradually he began to hear a call to become a minister in the Church of Scotland. He began studying, and when the time came for his release, he applied and was accepted for theological training. His fellow students came to accept him. The church where he worked as an assistant came to accept him. And then the time came for ordination, and the members of the presbytery were divided. Some rejoiced at his change of life and wanted to ordain him. Others feared that his crime had been so hideous that he could never be trusted. The presbytery was divided. It went to the the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. And of course, the argument was, uh, if, if God can use David, who was a murderer, if God could use Saul, who became Paul, who was a murderer, can God not use this man? And it became clear that the question was not, is this man really able to change his ways? But the question was, is God really able to change this man? And people came to feel that to refuse ordination was to doubt not the character of the man, but the power of God. And so it was decided that he should be ordained. No man is beyond the skill or power of God to remodel, to reshape, to recreate, to recreate his life. Now, it's one thing, of course, saying that in general terms, agreeing that this is what the Bible teaches, but it's quite another if you confront someone whose wrongdoing has hurt or damaged your life in the past, do you believe that person can be changed. Some of you will know the story of Corrie Tem Boom. She wrote a book, The Hiding Place. She lived in Holland uh, during the Second World War with her, her sister and with her father who had a watchmaker's business. And when the Germans overran Holland and uh, uh, began uh, moving about the town where she lived, Harlem. 
looking for Jews to send off to Auschwitz. Her father, who was in his 80s, Corrie, who was in her 40s, and her younger sister, they hid Jews, and they helped many of them escape. Eventually, a neighbor betrayed them, and they were arrested, shipped off uh, to prison camp. Curry's father, who was in his 80s, he only lasted 10 days before he died. And Curry and her sister were moved about, and eventually they went to Ravensbrück concentration camp. And there, they had a very difficult time. Corrie's sister died. She survived the war. She was a very devout Christian, and after the war, Corrie started preaching in Holland and around Germany, preaching a message about forgiveness. And then one day, this message that she'd preached in many times confronted her and asked her, do you really believe? Let me just read a little bit of the story in in her own words. This is what she writes. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I'd just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was a truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture— God casting our sins into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never any questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood in silence, and silence collected their coats, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others, One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with a skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the room, the shame of walking naked past this man, I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betty, Betsy, how thin you were. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know, as you say, that all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook, rather than take his hand. He wouldn't remember me, of course. How could he, one prisoner among thousands of women? You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. 
Again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And as I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. How could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It couldn't have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that the message that God forgives is a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will the Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness isn't an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much but supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did so, an incredible thing took place. The current started on my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flow and flood through my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. And for a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prison prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Now, I read that little bit of autobiography by Corey, and I tell you the story not because of its happy ending, but to make the point that there's all the difference in the world between believing in general terms that God can remake people's lives and believing that he can do it in the life of some individual who has hurt us, who has adversely affected our lives. There's all the difference in the world. And to believe is to believe that it can happen for that person who has affected us. Nobody, we believe, is beyond the skill or the power of God to remake, to reshape, to recreate their lives. And God is saying, I believe, three things to us today. First of all, be careful. Be careful how you judge others. Be careful how you judge others whom you meet this week. Be careful how you judge others when you talk to others casually in conversation. Always remember as you're talking about that person, God is the potter, not the glass blower. And secondly, of course, be hopeful. As you see people on the street, as you see them in, on TV, remember God's power can work to mold and to remold the hardest clay, to reshape even the worst of people's lives. And by the way, he may want our help, our prayers, our attitudes, our actions can be the instruments of God's changing of that person. And then the third thing I think we've got to remember. We've got to remember to be humble. 
the God who created the vast universe, seeks entrance not just to the lives of these people that we talk about out there, but God seeks entrance into our lives, your life and mine. He wants to come into our lives during this coming week and change them, remold them. And we need to be humble enough to realize our need and not simply to allow but indeed to actively ask God the divine potter to change us, to make us the men and women that we were meant to be. And we always need to remember that the work of the potter is a work that goes on in our lives and in the lives of others till the end of time.